Hello, everyone. This is the Longevity Biotech Show with your host for today, Nathan Chang. Um, so our show is uh, basically we do Q&As with the people who are building and funding technologies that extend healthy human lifespan. And uh, today we have the privilege of having Tyler Golato on the show. Uh, Tyler is one of the masterminds behind VitaDAO, which is a centralized organization that uh, is attempting to fund longevity research and tokenize the resulting uh, IP using uh, the Ethereum blockchain. Um, Tyler is also the co-founder of Molecule.to, which is a, a startup that connects uh, researchers with investors by um, turning IP into liquid assets. So uh, welcome to the show, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Yeah, it, it's our, our honor to have you here. So um, maybe we'll just start off uh, maybe you could tell me about your your background, just uh, just briefly your your bio. Yeah, sure thing. So my background's really in biochemistry and molecular biology. When I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a, a physician. I grew up in the United States, and I sort of pursued that vision head on for um, several years. When I was at university, I started interning in clinics, became a little bit more interested in research, and also. I guess you could say became a little bit disenchanted with the way that healthcare functions in the United States. Uh, I, I feel personally there's a lot of perverse incentives. Physicians lack a lot of autonomy. And there's sort of a lot of things that fundamentally stand in the way of patients receiving care. And at the time, I was, when I was studying, I was really interested in oncology, became more involved in the laboratory, and, and sort of saw that the, the real way to drive medicine forward was, was through research, particularly translational research. And then during my time working in an experimental therapeutics laboratory, I became increasingly interested in, in biogerontology. So again, I think looking at oncology through this lens of, you know, we're treating many different cancers in many different ways, medicine's becoming increasingly personalized. But biogerontology really appealed to me because there was this, almost this idea that you could take a more reductionist approach and treat something like you know, DNA damage by bolstering DNA repair, which in my mind had, a, had the potential, just as one example, to allow us to make inroads into, let's say, treating aging as a disease and all of the associated age-related diseases. Um, when I finished my fellowship at the National Institute on Aging, I actually took a couple of years to explore healthcare in a very different context. I, I moved to South Africa, where I worked in HIV vaccine development for a period of time and, and sort of less on diseases of, of affluence, which I felt had really been a big part of my career development. And during that time, I spent a lot of, a lot of time thinking about, you know, if I stayed sort of the, the path of an academic scientist, I would probably end up spending a lot of time in the lab working on, you know, a single protein or a single gene for the duration of my career. And, ultimately was really more interested in trying to do something to, let's say, affect the big picture or, or, or the system in some way. Um, yeah, so about three years ago, through a, a bit of a chance meeting, I met my business partner at, at Molecule, Paul Kolhas, who had been spending a lot of time thinking about how decentralization could help to change fundamental incentives and things like drug development by, by shifting sort of ownership dynamics and in therapeutics and sort of the working thesis that we have is, you know, what would healthcare look like if insulin, for example, was collectively owned by, by diabetics, if therapeutic intellectual property was owned by, let's say, the core stakeholders, be it researchers and patients who actually develop them. And I thought this was a really intriguing thesis um, and potentially one way that you could actually begin to, to, let's say, initiate some sort of change in a system that is let's say, sort of monolithic and extremely resistant to change. Okay, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I think your, your approach to changing things at a system levels, it, it, it sort of applies both to the science of aging, but also the system of, you know, pharmacology or like uh, the pharma industry. So you're thinking very systems uh, level, I, I really love that. So uh, maybe you could tell us more about what VitaDAO is and uh, what is the problem that it's trying to solve? Yeah, so, so VitaDAO's core mission is really to extend human health span and lifespan by, by researching, financing, and commercializing longevity therapeutics in an in open, accessible, and democratic manner. And sort of, I, I would say that the, the mission is really to create a world 
where longevity therapeutics are collectively funded, owned, and governed by the population that creates them and stands to benefit from them. All of us as, as patients, everyone who ages is, is really a patient in this context, and really the researchers that are they're working on, on this. And, and the way that we sort of want to achieve that is by moving longevity funding and development out of single institutions and into, let's say, a, a decentralized organization or a decentralized structure where you can get really broad participation, not only from members of the public and, and enthusiasts, but really by, let's say, researchers, postdocs, um, you know, institutions as well who want to be part of this organization that have some skill or something valuable to add. Um, and we believe that through these sort of structures, one of the really powerful things about decentralization is that you can bring together a large community that is collectively focused on, on a common goal. So what I'm particularly excited about with a structure like VitaDAO is this idea that you can, in essence, crowdsource expertise, intelligence, evaluation, due diligence, through a, like a carefully crafted scheme of incentives that aligns all of the stakeholders, hopefully, in, in drug development to work towards this common goal. And what makes this structure quite unique, as opposed from, let's say, a philanthropic organization or you know, even a VC in some contexts, um, is that the structure, in essence, will provide funding, typically in the range of $50,000 up to about a million dollars, to researchers with preclinical stage ideas and, and, and beyond um, in exchange for, for ownership in the intellectual property that, that they produce. And the owners of that structure will have the ability to, to really govern that and how it's developed. Yeah, I, I love the idea. I love the concept. Uh, I think even more so than just, you know, lowering the bench, the entry for people to, you know, invest in uh, longevity therapeutics, uh, the bigger scheme is really just like, getting everybody involved, right? So like, Absolutely. I like how it's, it's not geo-locked, right? Like you don't have to have gone to, you know, MIT, Harvard, or one of the UC exactly. schools to contribute. You could be anywhere in the world, right? And yeah, uh, yeah I, I really love that. So um, maybe you could walk us through uh, where you guys are right now in terms of developing VitaDAO. Yeah, absolutely. So the structure for, for VitaDAO is really a structure that we ultimately hope to, to replicate in different therapeutic areas over time. And, and what our hope is that we can build is that we can build a, basically a proof of concept structure that shows that DAOs, you know, as an organizational structure in general, can be applied quite broadly to fostering innovation in, in biopharma. And so, you know, VitaDAO was sort of conceived about a year ago as an initial proof of concept for this framework. Longevity and, and biogerontology are extremely close to my heart. It's what I believe is you know, the sort of most important area in, in medicine for making a lot of progress very quickly. And so you know, we're probably three or four weeks away from launching the structure. But where we are, let's say, in the moment and where we've been over the past three months is really you know, doing all of the work that it takes to actually sort of seed this organization and create the structure that, that will basically govern at a minimum how the first three months play out. So currently from a, from let's say an operational perspective, the DAO is divided into a number of working groups. Those working groups cover a, you know, a, a pretty broad range of areas ranging from legal you know, which deals with all of the legal aspects of the DAO, things like intellectual property filing, how the DAO will engage in contracts, um, the technical working groups, which is mostly focused on the actual smart contract and solidity development, the front end, how people will vote from a technical perspective, a governance working group, which is one of the most challenging and, and, and perhaps one of the most important for the, let's say, long-term success of the organization, a longevity working group, which uh, consists of sort of the initial evaluation frameworks, a, a bunch of in the longevity space, things like general operations, um, marketing and awareness, communication strategy. And basically we have, you know, really just through, through word of mouth and sort of seeding this idea out, we've attracted a, a large group of people who at the moment are really contributing their time and their expertise trying to figure out the best operational structure for, for the DAO to have to allow it to both be you know, democratic on one hand, but also efficient. And, you know, I, I'm a believer in decentralization. I'm a believer in DAOs, but 
they don't come without a huge variety of, of challenges, which you sort of want to do as much as possible in the beginning when you sort of create, you know, you see this idea to the world, you have maybe a, a mission, values, an ethos. You really want to get that right because the communication that you put out, the people that you attract initially in the early phases ultimately, you know, decide how, how this organization is going to grow, how it's going to develop and how efficient it's going to be. So at the moment, these working groups are well underway. You know, there's weekly meetings for each of them, quite a few. There's a lot of uh, asynchronous communication that's happening via Discord. And it's a little bit like, you know, herding cats, because again, this is, it's not a, a company structure with employees. There's probably slightly less accountability than there would be in a lot of organizations. Everyone is more or less a volunteer at this point, but I've been really impressed by you know, the ability for this to sort of come together. And, and the thing that's impressed me the most is the, you know, the caliber and, and, and type of people who have very quickly showed up and, and gotten their hands dirty and gotten involved. I, I mean, I often say that, like, the, the ability for this, this structure to succeed will entirely rest on, you know, people who are much more intelligent and have much more wherewithal than, than you know, myself or some of the early people that developed this. And, and what's been really inspiring is, just the caliber of people that have shown up and, and every day are, you know, sort of taking on tasks themselves and begin doing things. We sort of had this large, let's say, internal CRM tool, task manager, you know, and people basically show up, go through a, a vetting process, and, and then all of a sudden just start taking on tasks and doing things themselves, which, if nothing else, is sort of evidence that with a good idea that people believe in, you can really you know, motivate a community to come together and, and get things done. So it's been in extremely inspiring so far. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I mean, I think crypto is probably like the best example of, of you know, people just spontaneously congregating together and changing the world in a way that's just had never been done before, right? So, totally. Uh, I, I, yeah. I think it's really interesting. I mean, you know, I've, I come from like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a deeply skeptical person in general, just by nature. And I, I think I had a, a bit of like a hard one journey into crypto and ultimately drinking the Kool-Aid because I, yeah, by nature, I'm sort of skeptical of everything, skeptical of incentive schemes, skeptical of projects. And what I've learned recently, particularly over the past two years is that there are a lot of people who have been in this space uh, for, for quite a long time through the hype cycles, through sort of crypto winters that really came from this place of understanding that, you know, the power of decentralization really lies in this idea of, of communities and the power that communities have to create real change. And I, I have to say, for me, particularly in the past year, seeing how powerful these sort of decentralized organizations are and and how you can sort of crowdsource so much and achieve so much, almost in like a, a hive mind sort of way, has been extremely inspiring and really has brought me to the point of believing that these, this is like the future of work. I mean, beyond biotech or, or beyond anything else, I, I think it's really, what we're seeing is the, the sort of earliest days of what the future of work is going to look like. Yes, I, I totally agree. And if anybody in the audience or, or if Tyler, you, you're familiar with, uh, Balaji Srinivasan's work about like, you know, the crypto state or this crypto network, right? Totally. Where, you know, people no longer have to just, you know, work with the people that they randomly uh, happen to be born close to or just yeah. happen to be in the same city, right? It's, it's now everybody is basically assembling in the cloud and, you know, found each other through the internet, united around a single goal, like, like longevity here. And uh, yeah, and they can do so much together because of the power of the internet. And now we have incentive schemes to sort of like, um, to facilitate even more progress with things like VitaDAO. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so maybe we can just like rewind a little bit and uh, go from start to finish, just like how VitaDAO will, you know, do the sort of like taking research, maybe voting on these proposals, uh, how, how that's going to go through the VitaDAO system. And, and eventually in the, in the end, how does it like, become commercialized, like just all these like sort of step-by-steps. How, do, how does it, you know, fund research and then take that research and commercialize it? 
Yeah, so I, I think in the beginning, there's, there's uh, you know, a hope to sort of, to the extent that it's possible, mimic successful patterns of execution that we would see in the biotech space, with the fundamental difference being that this, again, is a decentralized organization. And there, there's obviously challenges that come with this, right? So, I, I mean, from a, from a user flow perspective, basically what will happen is we'll have sort of a genesis funding event where the DAO will raise you know, a, a certain amount of, of funding. After that, basically, you'll have everyone who's participated in that will be a member. Members have the ability, anyone who's a member has the ability to make proposals that, that also go beyond just funding decisions. They're decisions about how the DAO is governed, how the treasury is governed, how, let's say, working groups are incentivized, if they want to hire a full-time equivalent person, you know, the ability to do that. But from, from an actual let's say project funding and evaluation standpoint, there's a few different modes that we're really looking at to, to begin to bring in, in, in research. And so the, the first one and perhaps the most common one will just be through uh, sort of an open call process that is quite similar to the way that let's say the pharmaceutical industry often goes out to universities, engages with, you know, for example, Pfizer might go to Harvard and they might have, let's say, a competition or something where they are looking for a therapeutic in the context of a, of a certain area, or they want to assemble some of the brightest minds in the translational drug discovery department. And they'll basically ask people to pitch ideas for projects in exchange for a, you know, a, a certain amount of funding. And in exchange for that, they would typically, Pfizer would own the intellectual property that results out of, out of those projects. And this would be quite similar. So in, in essence, it's sort of almost like a, like a reverse contract research agreement that allows the DAO to go out, find projects that are interesting and, and create funding in exchange for that ownership. The, there's a lot of other ways that we're exploring that are perhaps more innovative or interesting that we can also begin to employ, employ which has to do with you know, things like the creation of bounties, for example where members decide that there is an intriguing therapeutic area that they believe is worth targeting. This could be something like mitohormesis, for example, or you know, senolytics, and people could apply for different tracks to you know, receive funding for a project that they're working on. The DAO could op also operate much further downstream. It could, it could actually simply out-license therapeutics that are at a certain stage and engage in co-development deals. We have a number of contract research organizations that are also joining the DAO. Uh, Arcturus being one of the first, which is a fully robotics, uh, full, full, like it's a cloud robotics laboratory based out of Oxford, one of the first of its type, first of its kind. Um, and they'll also, what's really interesting is, and this is also something that's helped prove our thesis, but they're willing to provide preclinical development services in exchange for partial payment in, in tokens, which really validates some of the initial thinking around you know, the value of these tokens and their ability to be used as an incentive. So the long-term goal is to really attract members, institutions, service providers that have the ability to collectively carry out all various aspects of the, of the development process, ranging from you know, the early preclinical stages, probably up to the point of, of clinical trial. And you know, it becomes a little bit more difficult when you're talking about getting into clinical trial, the funding amounts are typically much larger. There's obviously a number of other issues around you know, longevity therapeutics being that you know, aging is not considered a, a disease or a targetable indication. But what we're really focusing on is this sort of, let's say, in essence, the valley of death. You're sort of academics who are working on a project that has sort of gone from being basic research to increasingly looking like it might be a commercializable product, but maybe need you know, $250,000, something like this in, in funding to do more or less the killer experiment, something that will show that this either has a high likelihood of succeeding or could, you know, in essence, uh, kill the project. And so part of the thinking here is, you know, you have this, this area of, of funding that is intrinsically quite high risk, right? I mean, if you're familiar with investing in, in, in biotech or if you understand the life cycle of a, of a therapeutic, the, the risk profile for, for drug development is quite high and you typically end up, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Andrew Lowe at MIT, he sort of had this, this theory around uh, mega funds, but really the, the, the profile is like you're either, you know, you, you end up making 0% or, you know, multiple X. There's no like partial success in drug development, right? Drugs either fail or they, they, they make it to market. And interestingly, I think what you have at the moment are a lot of people in, in crypto who you know, maybe 
became millionaires or billionaires, they want to do something meaningful with their money, they want to do something that they care about, there's a huge overlap in the longevity space, people really want to fund these sort of things, but I think what's unique about the structure is it allows you to do it in a certain way that is not, you know, not really philanthropy, but also not necessarily traditional investing either. It really has maybe a more unique risk profile than, let's say, a, you know, investing as a VC or something would, would look like. So over the, you know, once, once a project is actually funded, you know, they have to outline specific milestones where they might need more funding. They obviously have to have a certain timeline, what their experimental plans are, with full understanding that science is, is not linear and, you know, a lot of it is failure and things often don't work. What we're really encouraging is for laboratories to have a really tight working relationship with the community. And, and just for example, the, the first laboratory, which is the Shabai Nutsen Laboratory at the University of Copenhagen, you know, they're going to be posting weekly updates of what's happening in the lab, videos, we ran a Western blot, here's what happened. And we hope to create, you know, a sense of community and engagement and, and ownership in these projects where even when things don't work out, which is often the case in the sciences, people feel really connected to this project, they feel connected to the people and they, they want to keep pushing and keep developing it. And then, so when we get to the stage of actually let's say having intellectual property, something promising comes out, uh, a patent is to be filed. There's a few different ways to do that. We're still quite deep in the, in the legal engineering around this. There's questions around, you know, does the DAO need to, for example, create a, a special purpose vehicle for this in a specific jurisdiction? You know, what, is, what are the requirements going to be there? And we're sort of exploring this with US legal counsel and European legal counsel to find the most frictionless way of doing it. And then at a certain point, I mean, there's, there's many different options, right? The DAO can choose to license the, the IP if, if they choose to do so. They can choose to try to engage in co-development work with you know, other institutions that might be keen to do that. Uh, but in, in many ways, it's, you know, it can only be engineered from a sort of vision and values perspective. At the end of the day, it's really up to the community that, that constitutes this organization and how they want to do it. And obviously with a lot of guidance and a lot of input from sort of, um, let's say, domain experts in different areas. So we have, for example, like a, a council of longevity experts that we're building that is going to give input to the sort of, to the public or, or the participants in this DAO on, on what they feel are best practices. But at the end of the day, it's really the decision of the community as to how they want to actually bring these to market and how they want to continue funding it or, or stop funding it, et cetera. So there's a huge amount to be yeah, like really to be determined and, and to be seen. And, and, you know, I look at this as like a, a very active experiment. I think this is why I'm attracted to, to crypto in a lot of ways. We hosted uh, an AMA with, with Aubrey and Vitalik the other day, and one of the most interesting things that popped up for me was something that Vitalik said about, um, you know, he felt that the real contribution of the sort of crypto space was creating this breeding grounds for experimentation and providing, you know, whether it's economic or incentive design or systems design, that's the real contribution of, of the space to sort of human progress. And I, and I totally agree. That's, that's also why I'm drawn to it. Yeah, definitely. I, that AMA was just amazing. Uh, Aubrey <laughs> dropped some some interesting bombs. Yeah, during no that. kidding. <laughs> yeah, people have been reading into those a lot. <laughs> yeah, and of course Vitalik has been a great supporter of, of the longe longevity community, so that was great to see them, both of them together. Um, yeah, so that was a lot to take in, just like figuring out the, how you how you think the process will will play out, but at, at the same time, it, this is very much an experiment, right? And, uh, Absolutely. you know, the DAO, the DAO is made of people and it's just going to sort of evolve organically as we go. Yeah, I guess maybe, I, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think the interesting challenge here is that, you know, even as, you know, I don't consider myself a, a co-founder of this organization because there's not any sort of real hierarchy within it to support that sort of claim, right? So what what you have is essentially like, a structure that is very flat where people need to determine a framework, ways, et cetera, to work together and do things. So I could say to you that, you know, in one year's time, this is what I imagine Vita Dao will be doing, but it, it really comes from, it will ultimately come from, from the community. And, and the reliance that we have at the moment, or the belief that we have, let's say the conviction is that we will be successful if the majority of members of VitaDAO are researchers, students, you know, people who 
mostly buy into this structure on the basis of, of vision and emission. And I think if we're successful with, with that component, which is really what I, I see that as my primary goal and my primary role is, is sort of maybe not evangelizing, but like advocating that this is a really interesting experiment, a really interesting journey to go on and, and trying to convince people to join this and not only join it, but help shape it and help, you know, create the way that the way that it works. I think, you know, even in the past four weeks, one of the things that has made launching this quite difficult in the sort of timelines that we want to launch it in is that brilliant people join our Discord. They have ideas, they add those ideas, and routinely my thought is like, that's probably a better way of doing this than, than I've considered. And so you constantly, you know, you're constantly taking in feedback from people. You're constantly, um, you know, I think iterating and improving on, on what the organization looks like or how it could be, but it's, it's changing really rapidly. And I think it's also really exciting to see that, to see that progress. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, uh, you know, I'm part of the, the Telegram groups and the Discord groups, and I, you know, I get all these different messages. I, I see the chatter and, yeah, people are really excited about this, which is um, amazing, right? Like, uh, this is, yeah. uh, I see this as sort of like a, a rallying point for the longevity community and also, uh, you know, as a bonus, also, to, you know, bringing in the crypto community as well, which is, which is like my favorite cross-collaboration ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, I have maybe a couple more minutes before we open up for uh, audience questions. So maybe you can uh, let people know how they can participate, both uh, maybe in the Genesis event, the token sale, and also uh, if they want to get involved, like in the, the actual like running of the DAO and the, the different groups that are that are going on behind the, the scenes. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, the easiest way to get involved in by far the most active space that exists for communication is, is our Discord community. Um, so joining the Discord and, and yeah, introducing yourself, meeting people there, beginning to engage in the active conversations that are happening is, is a great initial way to get involved. We just updated our websites with the different working groups that are happening. There's basically, uh, if you click on one of those and you believe that you have some expertise, that would be valuable to contribute in the context of those working groups. You can go there, sign up, um, and that's, let's say, a, a much more active way to become involved in, in shaping the organization. Because again, pre-launch, it's like you have this Discord community, but no one's really a, a member yet other than the people who are actually joining sort of the working groups and will be incentivized through their work there to actually be a part of the structure. As, as a researcher, we're basically, you know, about a week away from launching a, a large global incentive scheme that would basically mean that if you were, you know, a researcher that felt you had something that could be added from a skills perspective, whether it's, and this could range anywhere from, you know, advocacy to education to um, due diligence in projects, evaluating them, help, helping to bring in certain projects, speaking to, to other professors at universities. We're basically launching an incentive scheme where you, you won't need to participate in the sale. We'll, we'll basically make you a member, give you a certain amount of tokens um, in exchange for that work. And then otherwise, the, the primary way that, that most people will become members is by participating in the actual Genesis funding event which I can't announce the date yet just because there's a few technical moving parts that, you know, plus or minus about a week at this point, but will be happening sometime around mid-June. And that will be through a Gnosis auction, which might sound scary and unfamiliar if you're not super deep in the Web3 space, but we'll have very detailed explainers on the front end of our website, basically a portal that directs you there and make it as easy as possible for even a layman who's not familiar with Web3 or doesn't hold any Ethereum or something like that to be able to actually um, you know, contribute quite easily. But I would say the primary you know, uh, point of call or, or call to action would be for people to join our Discord community, engage with us, and, and potentially join the working groups. Okay, great. So if anybody out there in the audience or listening at home on you know, the podcast recording, if you're interested in getting involved with uh, VitaDAO, definitely go check out the Discord group. Uh, you could probably get to the Discord group first by going to the official website. There's links yes. there. And uh, okay, great. So um, we're basically at the halfway point. So I'm going to open up for uh, audience questions. So if anybody in the audience has a question, raise your hand, we'll bring you up. Uh, just FYI, 
Um, if you come up to the stage, that means you're consenting to us using your audio in the recording of this podcast and your profile photo in the video recording that we'll be uploading to YouTube. So um, while people are uh, filtering in and uh, asking questions, uh, maybe I'll just get one quick question in before. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out what um, what kind of projects would be best uh, funded by VitaDAO in, in terms of like things that couldn't be funded through traditional like VC firms or investment, um, you know, funds. Yeah, so I think this is, I mean, I suppose there's nothing that prevents anyone from funding anything really at the end of the day. But for me, what it comes down to is just like the, if you look at the distribution of funds that exist, what you'll see is that there's a fairly reasonable amount of funding for things like, let's say, basic research. If I was working on a specific maybe DNA repair protein in a certain context. And there's things that there's funding that exists for, you know, startups, if you're at the stage of creating a, an actual startup. And there's funding that exists for things that are, you know, that are quite late stage, where maybe I have a, an asset in phase one or phase two. What we're really interested in are those projects that are sort of, maybe I have something here, maybe there's a viable pathway for a therapeutic, but I'm let's say 250,000 to a million dollars away from being able to answer that question. I think the way to think about it would be, you know, everyone uses the term moonshots. I, I don't think it should just be really moonshots, but it's really those that, um, let's say the risk profile is a little bit more in extreme than you would see with traditional venture capital and things like that. And, and maybe so from a, from a phase perspective, I would say that we're looking at, at things that would be mostly classified as, as sort of preclinical drug development stages. Um, and beyond therapeutics, obviously also a strong interest in things like biomarkers, diagnostics, things that can help us improve our understanding of, of aging generally and also complement therapeutic approaches that emerge in the future. Okay, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think another interesting uh, avenue for funding or, or projects that could be funded or things that have like a long, longer timeline, right? Because most VC yeah. funds have a very defined sort of horizon, but um, things like uh, that are maybe more out there. Yeah, like you said before, like the risk profile is a little more uh, more extreme perhaps. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I think uh, an interesting example would be like Jean Hebert's work at uh, Einstein College uh, of Medicine, where they're trying to reverse brain aging by replacing like neural tissue and and that's yes i was like... looking at that that that's absolutely <laughs> incredible I, I mean so these are like the dream sort of projects that <laughs> that we would want to fund for example but obviously it goes both ways right like i mean there are i'm sure academics who would be you know um who maybe are a bit conservative and they're thinking around how they would want to get funding or maybe that you know, it, it, for us, it's also we need to win people over and, and make people believe that this is, let's say, a viable funding source and something they would want to engage in. And, and for me, I think that will become very clear once we've done this three or four times quite successfully with the first initial projects. And then my hope is that really people begin to come to us with with projects exactly like that, you know. Um, but in the beginning, I think we'll have to go out and, and really advocate for it. Yes, I definitely agree <laughs> because in some sense you, you want to get some early wins because if you uh, if you put all your eggs in one basket in the in like a non diversified approach, it's, totally. it's very difficult to survive as as a DAO, I suppose. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so um, we have some people on the stage. Uh, let's go with Lawrence first. So, uh, Lawrence, what's your question? Ah, uh, I wish I wish you actually went with Aaron first because Aaron is my good friend here who. Uh, is actually a moderator of uh, the Reddit uh, r slash longevity, which has about 100,000 posts. And, and when when Tyler said, uh, 100,000, uh, sorry, uh, members almost. And when, when Tyler said, we will win if the majority of people are these kinds of people, I think the kinds of people on that Reddit are, are, are perfect. Of course, there are probably a lot more students than... Uh, than, than major researchers. Of course, I mean, you're not going to have you know, 100,000 people. You're only going to have a few researchers. But yeah, we should definitely try to to get those kinds of people on board. And what I wanted to ask Tyler, uh, so I, I will let Aaron speak after, but uh, 
Uh, I also wanted to ask uh, ask Tyler if he can explain a bit more about how the people here that think, hey, look, I think I could help with this or that, um, a bit more than, than just the Discord. Uh, I, I talked to Tyler and I, I, I learned how to, how to actually help, but um, it, was a bit, it, it was a bit hard uh, to actually um, get to the point where I can uh, contribute, even, even if it's just a small thing, you know. Uh, maybe I have, this, uh, I, I have this friend who's running a lab and I would like to, to propose them for funding or I have... Um, I don't know another friend who who's a crypto millionaire and he he's he's on board uh, the mission and he would like to to invest or stuff like that. Just yeah, absolutely. So I mean, one I have to be completely transparent with you. It's it's been pretty difficult. We've we've had you know several hundred applications for people to come in, join working groups, get involved and help. And and you know we're struggling a little bit to keep up. So I have to say we've been a bit slow in in actually managing to onboard people quickly enough. Part of this is because currently we're also very deep in things like the smart contract development, organizational design, and I think every person who joins really deserves a fair onboarding. This is an extremely important part of building communities and creating buy-in. So, I mean, the, the best way really for people who are very serious about getting deeply involved is to really do what you did, Lawrence. I mean, you joined the Discord and, and you got in contact with me personally. It would be the same for any of the other core team members or working group members. If you speak to someone directly and really show initiative and motivation, I think there's a lot of ways to, let's say, not sidestep the application process, but just have things expedited a bit. We also receive, I mean, everyone's extremely well-intentioned, but you know, you also have people who are submitting applications that Maybe it's not exactly clear what they could do to help at this stage and the pre-launch stage specifically. And so it's, you know, it's often difficult to say, um, you know, we want everyone to be able to get involved and to help. But just because it's still pre-launch, it's a little bit difficult at the moment with, with everything going on. The best way is definitely, I mean, if, if you do in our Discord, you'll see me in there. The, the best way is probably just to reach out to me directly or, or Paul or Theo or any of the other people that you see as sort of the Vita service team. Um, yeah, and we could get people sort of involved very quickly. Um, but otherwise, for people who do fill out the form and sort of maybe find themselves waiting for one, two, three weeks, uh, I, it's worth knowing that we will get back to you. It's just been a little bit of a, a slow process because there was, I, I think, a lot of interest simultaneously. Okay, great. Let's um, go to our next question. Uh, does that answer your yes. question? Uh, no, just wanted to offer, like, you know, if Tyler, if you need help onboarding people, I, I can I can help with that as well to kind of uh, um, free you up a bit, so people can message me as well, and I can try to to help them uh, a bit more. And and also, Aaron, sorry to put you on the spot here. I don't know if you, that's what you wanted to to ask, but uh, yeah, please go ahead. Okay, cool, Aaron. Uh, Sure. Um, have you, uh, Tyler? Have you seen a DAO work uh, to like be successful in in any context or in biotechnology specifically? In any context. Any yeah, context. Absolutely. I mean, so if you look at, I mean, there's many different examples. I think the the most prominent ones would be sort of DAOs that. I mean, again, I guess it depends on how you define success, but many of the DAOs that exist at the moment basically do um, sort of decentralized investment or de decentralized VCs. I think a lot of them have been extremely successful, at least in a, let's say, looking from a like ROI standpoint, things like that. If you look at DAOs like Flamingo or the Lao, for example, which operate to create let's say, I mean, again, very different use cases. The Lao is, is funding, I think, a lot of development around projects and dApps in the Ethereum space. Flamingo is sort of an NFT investment vehicle. You have communities like Rloop, which are basically, it's like a sort of semi-private engineering consortium, which has been very successful in the context of the works that it's doing with its members. Gitcoin just launched. I think they're going to be not proven yet, but extremely successful in terms of you know, their ability to leverage a large community of de developers. This is the other area where I think you see a lot of success with DAOs, sort of decentralized development communities that do different things. 
um, and maybe have things like bounties that are created, which I think is also a really cool way of almost engaging in like freelance work as a developer. Um, where I would say that we haven't seen, you know, there's also the, the, the DAO, which was a, a catastrophic failure. Um, and I think really, you know, haunts a lot of the thinking around uh, the DAO space. But I think that's, you know, one of the only examples of, of more or less spectacular failures. Um, and the space is extremely young. You know, the DAO tooling, DAO framework uh, that have emerged in the past two years are extremely powerful. Things like Malik DAO, Colony. Um, you, you have, you know, basically had tooling, let's say, two years ago that was much less sophisticated in terms of your ability from a technical perspective to actually run a DAO efficiently. So, you know, it would be like saying, it's sort of like saying in like, you know, the first days of the internet, like, have you seen a website that really gets a lot of traffic or has an amazing business model or like has been successful from a revenue perspective? You know, probably not in a hugely spectacular way yet, but I think it's just because the space is in its, it's, in its infancy. Right. So I believe that DAOs can be very successful at aggregating wealth. Um, but I'm talking about, like, has a DAO actually changed something? You know, like, there used to be, the world was one way, and now this DAO came along, and then something got invented, or something, you know, the, the ugh, signal quality. Um, it actually did some kind of accomplishment. You know, not just, hey, we've got a bunch of users or, hey, we got a bunch of money. Um, I would say the DAOs that exist to focus on on development, I mean, again, maybe not in a huge world changing sort of way, but essentially, I mean, in terms of like, yeah, I mean, for example, in the Ethereum ecosystem in general, like the approaches to, to let's say, decentralized development, solidity development, I think DAOs are certainly changing the way we work. I think that's a pretty big accomplishment. But in terms of, in terms of like, yeah, maybe inventing something really meaningful or, or you know, beyond sort of decentralized finance and beyond um, maybe development in the context of the blockchain ecosystem, which is the primary place in which... DAOs have really been explored, right? Overwhelmingly, DAOs were utilized to take a decentralized community of people who wanted to do something or wanted to engage in something in the blockchain space, whether that be developing an, an application for Ethereum or pooling resources to do something or sharing ideas. Beyond that, they haven't really been explored so much. I mean, and, and I think it's because they're quite new. So, I mean, maybe the, the, the easiest way to answer your question would probably be not in the, maybe not in the way that, that you're speaking of in terms of like a, you know, you know, the world being a fundamentally different place. I would argue that, that you know, bl blockchain technology and decentralized finance probably has changed a lot of people's lives and, and you know, maybe, maybe the world forever in that context, but, but uh, maybe not in the ways that I would feel are most meaningful or something. You know, I, I don't think there's been a tremendous scientific advancement. But there's people working on things like, you know, Research Hub, for example, and, and things like, coming up with new systems to engage in peer review and new systems to you know, create reputation in the sciences. There's people exploring use cases in the context of DAOs, but they're, they're extremely early. I would say the one that I probably find maybe the most interesting is, is Research Hub. And I would, yeah, I would suggest for those that care about the sciences or care about things like you know, wanting to change a system that's based on impact factor publishing, how we collaborate to check out Research Hub, which are doing um, amazing work. Hasn't changed the world yet, but I, I'm convinced it will. Okay, so short answer would be no then, okay. Um, yeah. All right, um, let's see here. It's sort of, Is there, it's like saying, um, you know, just, to, just to play the devil's advocate, like have you seen a drug that has slowed down the aging process dramatically in humans? You know what I mean? No. It's like, no, right. yeah, exactly. but it's still, still worth going for. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, is there a reason why crypto has to be involved with a decentralized network? No. Okay. All right. That's, that's, that's all for, that's all the questions I have. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, very very succinct answer, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, there's but yeah. So I mean, there's you could have, uh, I mean, crypto. I, I think in the context of a of a private blockchain, for example, that is inherently not decentralized. It's a bit of a, 
I mean, so there's enterprise enterprise blockchains, for example, that are no, private. Well, I mean, um, so I like the decentralized nature of it. Uh, I'm wondering why sorry sorry you broke up on the end there could you say that one more time yeah um it's poor signal over here uh i like the decentralized nature of it i'm wondering why crypto has to be involved from your oh yeah no absolutely so i mean that's that's a great question it's it really for me has to do with uh creating a system that is permissionless trustless and doesn't have an intrinsic hierarchy so maybe a better question would be how would you mediate this without let's say smart contracts in a trustless way where there were where there weren't hierarchies the the thing that actually makes this system let's say function without the need for a centralized organization is the fact that you have a technology that actually allows functions to be executed based on on voting without someone actually mediating those decisions so meaning that if token holders let's say vote in a certain way they stake their tokens in a contract. That contract is linked to a decision, maybe to deploy funds. And there's no one that can basically step in and say, never mind, you know, or actually no, it's you're putting your trust in the tech stack that you're creating. And so far in terms of those tech stacks, I mean, in my opinion, the Ethereum blockchain and, and the development of smart contracts is the most technically advanced, proven and built upon mechanism in order to achieve that from a technology perspective. You could probably try to create something yourself that did this uh, with software that didn't involve crypto and maybe you would succeed but what we have are you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of people creating this infrastructure it's pretty well battle tested and it's well suited for these things and then the other thing that it allows you to engage in using that same tech stack is is incentives which is basically the creation of a token that can incentivize certain decision making and so how else would you for example incentivize it in this context um, maybe you would pay people with fiat currency or something, then you would probably need, you know, it, it begins to need additional centralized elements, an accountant, you know, probably a, a treasury that's governed by somebody. Uh, so, I mean, the, the real answer is just because it's, it's the technology that is most well suited for the use case. And I, I, I think it would actually be much more difficult to engineer the structure without crypto. Does, does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I, I think the uh, Aaron's just my bad. Right in. Okay, I got. I switched over to um, the wireless network over here, so now the hopefully the signal's better. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Great. Great. Okay. Um, we'll just okay. move on to the next question. Uh, Daniel, what's your question? Oh, so maybe Daniel, you can introduce yourself. Um, hi, Tyler. Really exciting. Um, I'm Daniel. I'm from Chef Bioscience. So we're just a small startup working in the longevity space i won't, won't go into all the details um i think the most exciting thing about this is that you've got the mission on the one hand but you've got a blank slate on the structure and it's not just a blank slate for one person with a lot of money it's a blank slate for everybody so what i wanted to ask you were talking about you know it's it's an experiment right that's the excitement you've got a blank slate and you've got the experiment how do you manage you know say those three ideas about how you're going to move forwards um, can you run a couple of those ideas in parallel? Are you going to try one at a time? You know, it's, it's almost like experimental workflows. How are you going to, how are you going to sort of evolve as you move forwards? Because that's sort of the excitement for me. You know, what this might become. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, it, it's a question of scale for us. There's a certain, you know, we aren't sure how successful we're going to be in the initial fundraise event. Uh, you know, we have certain targets and create scenarios and modeling based on certain targets that, that we might reach. For example, if we can fund five projects versus 50 projects, I think the risk that you might take with those early projects or the sort of things that you would look for are, are, are quite different depending on the resources that you have, which I think is true for, for any organization. At the end of the day, it's still a community decision, meaning that you know, anyone can really submit proposals, people can critique those proposals, experts can weigh in on the nature of those proposals and give feedback. And if, you know, if we <laughs> raised X amount of money and everyone collectively decided that, hey, we think it's a great idea to, you know, I don't know, double down on, on funding a metformin trial or something, then you know, that's something that, that the community could decide to do. But my vision, and I think a lot of the people who are, let's say, the, the earlier part of the organization is to, 
you know, drive this in a direction that is somewhat balanced and a bit diversified initially from a risk portfolio perspective. I think we, again, want to focus on the sort of moonshots and the things that are maybe a bit out of reach for, for VCs and, and, or, or maybe too risky for VCs and, and maybe not the types of things that the NIH would fund, for example, and go after, you know, people who have a certain vision, also a certain mission and values alignment in terms of, you know, people who are excited about the nature of this experiment that, that we're conducting, who would want to engage with the community, get feedback, work in a slightly more open way. That's, that's really what we're personally looking for. Because if nothing else, if, if this experiment fails, what I would like to walk away with it, you know, having done is funded some incredible work, brought a bunch of you know, bright minds together, created ideas, shared value, and I'm sure that even if the structure failed itself, something amazing would be born out of that pre-existing community. And that's, that's essentially you know, where my thinking at is, is at and, and why, we, why we sort of are doing this. Um, and Tyler, just really quick follow-up. How long has the experiment got to run? Yeah, so like, what's your runway to get it right? Because it'd be good to have a bit longer runway just to have a few shots at getting it right. Well, I mean, again, it's, it's you know, the, there's an initial token distribution where, I, I'm not sure if I could disclose this yet, but I, I think it's okay to say the, the overwhelming majority of the, the tokens will not be issued at, at launch. They'll be kept within the DAO, in the DAO treasury. And the DAO has the ability to issue these tokens in the future. It has the ability to do follow-on fundraises, but obviously it, its ability to be successful with that will be defined on on you know, how successful it is initially. And so what we're trying to do at a minimum from an execution perspective is, is be, you know, 100% sure that we can write at least five $250,000 tickets with enough sort of operational runway to at a minimum survive for, for five to eight years. And, but that would be extremely conservative. Um, this is what I would imagine would be almost like worst case scenario in essence in terms of a let's say, longevity perspective for the organization. What we're really hoping is, and, and what I think is possible with, with the way that the, the token distribution is going to work, is that the vehicle should have the ability to run for, you know, for decades, if not longer, and hopefully it, you know, eventually come to a sustainable mechanism that allows its you know, indefinite survival. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for the questions. Great. So, um, so Tyler's essentially aiming for DAO immortality, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, that's the long-term goal, yes. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, very fitting. Um, next question, Laura, do you want to introduce yourself and ask your question? Yeah, hi, Nathan, Tyler. Um, thank you for having me. Um, I'm, my, I'm a, long, I guess, longevity advocate, but I'm more interested in the bringing longevity to the general public to make it a customer experience. So I think I, I, my question comes with a caveat that I'm obviously a longevity enthusiast and also a crypto enthusiast. However, we are going into what looks like a winter of crypto again, and uh, the market might be going bearish rather than what had been happening the last three months. Um, I want to know, how do we make longevity not go the path of crypto? Because even though I love crypto, um, there's something very off-putting with the crypto maximalists. It's mainly men, 25 to 35. And I find this in the longevity space, everybody like high-fiving each other and like all their cool projects. How do we actually make longevity? And I'm not a crazy feminist or I don't go screaming inclusivity in any place, but I'm interested in making longevity interesting for people. So that literally the housewife, the 50-year-old housewife wants it. Um, you this spoke an... about community earlier in the conversation. How do we make this a community, something that people are attracted to rather than repelled from like crypto in a way? This is an amazing question and something that I think, yeah, we struggle with a lot. One problem that we're having in the organization off the bat, and I could speak freely about this because it's I think it is a problem and it's extremely important to me that we begin to go a different way is a, is a diversity problem. I think you do tend to get demographics in both crypto and longevity that in many cases skew, you know, 
like you said, 25 to 35 white male, it's a problem. I'm also a person who, just to be clear, I mean, a lot of my aversion to crypto in the sort of early days came from, you know, participating in or watching sort of the early communities that, that were created in the space. A lot of, you know, I think what they call in DeFi, like <laughs> DGen communities, a lot of terrible, yeah, like, a culture that, that I don't think a lot of people should be proud of. And to, to, to be quite frank, when we were initially conceptualizing this vehicle, one of the things that kept me up at night or where I had a lot of fear about doing this was this idea that we would have, you know, a professor, an academic that I respect tremendously next to like Moonboy420 saying, when moon, you know what I mean? That's like a situation that <laughs> no one wants to, to create, especially not us, but it's a, a real part of this, this culture that exists. And not to, not to, I don't want to trash crypto culture. There's a lot of amazing things happening as well, amazing communities, people that really believe in the space, the promise of the space. But yeah, it can be difficult. It can be um, exclusive. It, so yeah, I mean, your question is, is a good one. I don't know if I have you know, the perfect answer to it. I mean, from, from an advocacy perspective, what I would love to do is, you know, begin to attract more women, more people of color, more people from different economic backgrounds. But obviously there's, you know, a number of barriers uh, from an opportunity standpoint, from a circumstantial standpoint that make this difficult. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a problem. And it's a problem for a lot of organizations. That that's, doesn't excuse it, but it's something that I think the community needs to be extremely mindful of. And, and one of the things I hope to do is to you know, create certain fellowship programs, certain incentives, and, and go out rather mindfully trying to seek people from diverse backgrounds and diverse communities. Regarding your question about you know, the, the crypto winter and, and you know, we're obviously in these hype cycles, if, if you've been in the space for a while, this is, this is nothing new. I mean, yeah, we've, crypto goes in cycles. There's hype that occurs, you know, all of the, a lot of the people who are in for the hype cycle fade away as soon as, you know, the market turns down. But there's, you know, if you've been in the space in 2013 or 2014, I think you'll see that there's a lot of people that persist and keep building. And I think at the point where we're at now in terms of adoption, like crypto is here to, say, to stay. I hope the, the demographics of the community changes over time, but I, I certainly don't think that, you know, uh, Bitcoin's going to go to zero and all of a sudden everything evaporates. Like, uh, I, th I think what you'll see is, you know, we'll get out of these sort of hyperinflated cycles, things will slowly stabilize on the time, over time, and, and all of these things that we think are quite fringy will become mainstream technological staples that, you know, power a lot of our, a lot of our world. But I, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the, yeah, the problem that we have with diversity and, and inclusivity, which is, uh, yeah, something that we've been speaking a lot about internally and, and something that uh, needs to be addressed, but, but yeah, is, is, is a challenge. Sorry, I'm, I'm not, did that, that answer yeah, like, no, okay? I, I mean, I, I love that you thought about it, and I think it's just something that I'd like to bring up a lot in terms of uh, getting people involved, the general public, uh, to get them excited, because I do believe that longevity is really the best way. Uh, I know that a lot of people in the longevity space do want to, the whole thing is anti-aging and reverse aging and end aging. I'll just be happy if I can die with without the degenerative diseases. Exactly. Uh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my, my interest in, in longevity really came from this idea of, of you know, health span extension and not wanting the last seven years of my life to be this precipitous and, and painful decline where, you know, within a system that just does everything in its power to keep you alive in the, in the face of a huge amount of suffering. So, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree that the transhumanist arguments are exciting and, and, and fascinating and intellectually engaging. But for me, longevity is a slightly different approach to medicine that has the, the potential to extend, you know, health span or healthy lifespan. And I think that's why it's a mission. Well, know, congrats with. on the DAO. And I hope I'm part of both groups. I don't know if I can say much, but uh, I'll be, uh, hopefully I can participate actively as well at some point. Looking forward. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for your question, Laura. So we're just about at the hour. So maybe we'll just wrap it up and maybe just go over some of the things that um, that Tyler has talked about. So uh, first and foremost, 
uh, if you want to get involved in VitaDAO, definitely go to their website and uh, join the Discord group. So that's the easiest way to sort of get connected with the community. If you have something that's more um, urgent that you want to propose or uh, kind of uh, work on, you can uh, message Tyler directly on Discord. Um, and uh, the other thing would be the uh, token sale is going to be coming up sometime in sometime in the middle of June. So watch out for that. Um, and then the other things, I guess, would be uh, anybody who uh, knows a researcher wants to submit proposals. If you if you know some um, scientists who are working in labs and they have some sort of idea that they want to um, to bring that needs funding um, and working on like longevity, health span extension, definitely try and connect them to the VitaDAO system uh, and uh, the community here. So uh, is there anything else, Tyler, that you, you want to say to the people uh, listening in the audience or uh, at home on, on podcasts? Um, no, not, not necessarily. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to speak here. And I, yeah, I really appreciate the platform that, that you've created and the advocacy that you do in general for, for longevity and giving people voices. So yeah, keep at it. And, and thanks so much for, for thinking of us and giving us a platform. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coming on uh, the show. It's been an amazing conversation. Awesome. Okay, great. So um, I guess that's we're going to end it here. Uh, next week, we're going to have uh, Marina Madrid from Salino. Uh, they're a uh, AI robotics and lasers stem cell editing company. <laughs> so that's going to be definitely Incredible. an interesting one to, to check out for. And that will be at our regular time at uh, 4 p.m. Eastern next Thursday. So um, with that, I just like to thank Tyler again. It's been a great conversation, and I'm really excited about Vita Dao. And um, yeah, so we'll we'll stay tuned for for whatever is going to happen uh, on your end. Thanks so much. Cheers, everyone. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Bye bye. Take care, everyone.